0: Um, and, uh, they're not captives in Babylon, but the first of those dates of is what we're reading about here. Yeah, go ahead. The,
1: the book of Lamentations would be describing that last one, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Good. The, the Lamentations of Jeremiah, you have just a horrific picture of what happens to Jerusalem. It, you still seem quiet to me. I don't know if Drew can do anything about it, but, um, but the first of those dates, 605, what happens in 605 BC?
1: That's when the uh, Babylonians uh, come in and conquer Jerusalem. And principally, particularly as far as this study is concerned, they take away the elites, the nobles, um, uh, those who they would see as being particularly valuable for their, their palace for training, that sort of thing, right? As well as yeah. a great deal of wealth. They would, they,
0: they would yeah. And, and the conquering is not a, really a military conquest. It's really more of Nebuchadnezzar, um, who at this point in time is under his father, Nabopolassar, who's king back in Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar achieves a great victory in the West. If you think about Uh, Babylon and and Judah, Babylon to the east, Judah to the west, Um, and Nebuchadnezzar uh, achieves a victory at Carchemish up north of of Judah, but in the west that gives him control of that area where Judah is. The Egyptians had exerted control over it, but now Nebuchadnezzar is going to exert control over it. And so in exerting his influence, he can come to Jerusalem and say, I want your your young, brightest, good looking, teachable young men who, who can be trained for services, uh, for positions of service and honor. Really, they, the positions would be positions of honor in my court back in Babylon. And I'm teaching the high school boys right now, and I think they kind of like it when I keep emphasizing that it's, it's boys just like them, the good-looking, young, intelligent, you know, the, those are the ones who would be being taken away. And among those are Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, I'm really a little inconsistent in my mentioning their names there because why?
1: Well, uh, yeah, I was... Uh it's it's Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Um, right,
0: those are their Hebrew names. Right. For some reason, we, <laughs> we know them as Daniel, which is his Hebrew name, and then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which are their Babylonian names. Uh, so anyway, all right. So so they are. So the the but the point here I want our our viewers to get is in 605 BC, Jerusalem's not destroyed. There are not many people taken captive just these young men who are trainable for service in nebuchadnezzar's court and and at at this time nebuchadnezzar gets word that his father has died and so he has to rush home to take the throne and then of course all these young men are in his army come back to babylon and so we pick up the story in daniel chapter one and and i'm gonna just unless there's something you want to talk about in daniel chapter one i'm just going to summarize it and say in Daniel chapter one, we see a picture of Daniel as a man of conscience and conviction. He is also a man who understands how to um, be true to his conscience and, and be true to his convictions without having a chip on his shoulder kind of an attitude. Uh, he's very gracious, but he's going to he's going to be true to his conscience. Conscience. Um, anything else you want to say about chapter one?
1: So maybe just noting the meaning of the name Daniel, uh, yeah. God is judge or the judge of God, something to that effect. Um, uh, I think that's really like it is with several other books. The the name of uh, the the main human in that story will many times help to serve as a a theme, and so God judging is, is going to be the theme. In chapter 1, he's judging Judah. Um, but you see even in chapter 1, the sense of God being in control. In Daniel 1, 2, the Lord gave Jehoiakim into his hand. Je- Daniel 1, 9, God brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill. And Daniel 1, 17, God gave them knowledge and skill and literature and so forth. So God is in control. God is the one that is moving the pieces in uh, this story.
0: I love love the way you put that, God is the one moving the pieces, because really, as we look at the book of Daniel, this is a a huge part of the message. Uh, God is the God of Israel, but he is God of the whole world, and we're going to see in their dealings with uh, the king of Babylon, Daniel, and also uh, his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are going to uh, demonstrate that God is the God of the Babylonians. God is God over everybody. And, and it's up to man to acknowledge that and recognize that. There's a, Joe, since you mentioned it, there's a, a verse in, in Daniel chapter 2, verse 21, um, that illustrates Daniel, the name, God is my judge. Or, and, and, and it says that Daniel prayed and said of God, it is he who changes the times and the epics. He removes kings and establishes kings. Nebuchadnezzar is a great leader, a great king, powerful man. And yet he is going to have to learn that no, God is really in charge. And uh, so, okay, good. So we get into Daniel chapter two. And uh, now Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. Daniel has been trained, he is now functioning as one of the counselors in Nebuchadnezzar's court and what happens.
1: Yeah. So he wants to know the meaning of this dream, but he wants to know that he knows the meaning of the the dream. Um, You know, you ask some magicians or astrologers or, you know, men who claim to be able to, to know dreams and visions, what does this mean? And they can kind of just make up any old story. Um, but he's so concerned. This is such a strange event for him that, that this is something really special, and it's beyond uh, other things in the past that we've seen. So he he wants proof that the that the interpretation is going to be true, and without it, he's just going to wipe out all of his counsel and and start over.
0: Did you have a dream last night? Do uh, you remember a yes, dream?
1: They, they, Every night, um, uh, my my dreams are uh, uh, very uh, scattered and um, often make absolutely no sense. So, um,
0: but but if you told me your dream, I might could pretend I made sense of it in a plausible way. <laughs> <laughs>
1: It would probably have some, your interpretation might have something to do with me owing you money or something like that, right? I'm sure it would.
0: <laughs> but the point is, if you don't tell me your dream and I try to come up with the interpretation of your dream and it has nothing to do with what you dreamed, then I don't have any credibility. Right. So Nebuchadnezzar is not going
1: to. I was going to say, it's like when you've heard of going into a fortune teller, and the first question you should ask them is, what is my name?
0: Right, right, <laughs> right. <laughs> and it's interesting.
1: When,
0: when, when Nebuchadnezzar goes to, because he doesn't go straight to Daniel. Um, and when he wants his his counselors, his magicians, his sorcerers, his conjurers, when he wants them to tell him the meaning of the dream and and <clears throat> they say, well, tell us what the dream was and we'll give you the interpretation. Yeah, I'm right. No, he's not going to do that. And they, they just think that that's unreasonable. And so they say in verses 10 and 11. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There's not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king, inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. Moreover, the thing which the king demands is difficult, and there's no one else who could declare it to the king except gods, whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. And so Nebuchadnezzar's kind of put out with him. He's gonna it's gonna be the end of them. And of course, word comes to Daniel. We, I guess, we need to move along here. But Daniel does interpret the dream. So let's talk about, and of course, he gives credit to God, and he says it's not I, it's God. But let's talk about what was the dream and what was the meaning of the dream, because again, we're going to see this theme: God is in control, and um, and and He's going to demonstrate He's in control by saying, "I know what the the future history is," and so. What was the dream in the interpretation?
1: Yeah, so uh, after uh, Daniel prays and uh, receives that dream, uh, then it's described about this great image, uh, this uh, large statue uh, had uh, different metals to it. Um, uh, You have the gold head and the the silver uh, chest and arms and its thighs and bellies of bronze and its legs of uh, iron and its feet of iron and clay uh just a really impressive statue but top down value right um mm-hmm. the head of gold and then working down with with, with less valuable uh items and so there is this rock.
0: yeah there's action the rock what happens
1: So, this uh, rock appears and uh, uh, destroys the image. Um, uh, The rock is uh, uh, cut out without hands, a stone is, and it it strikes the image and and destroys it. And then that rock or that stone becomes a great mountain. It grows, and is a great mountain. It fills the whole earth.
0: Yep. And I think it's worth noting here and then before we get into the interpretation that the in the dream, it is specified that the rock strikes the image on the feet at the bottom, of the image and the whole image crumbles. So we'll come back to that in a moment. So so that's the dream. And the interpretation is given starting in verse 36. Um, and, and Daniel says in verse 37, you're you're the head of gold, Nebuchadnezzar. And then but it's not Nebuchadnezzar personally, it's Nebuchadnezzar's uh, kingdom, his reign, because it says then um, after you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to you. So the, in the image, the statue, the head was made of gold and then the breast of silver. Well, of course, silver is less valuable than gold. So as you mentioned a little bit ago, you're going down in value, but that represents another kingdom um and then it says a third kingdom in verse 39 of bronze so the loins were bronze they had head of gold uh breast of silver loins of bronze and then the legs were of iron and it says in verse 40 there'll be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron and then it goes on and it describes the legs that as you go down toward the bottom of the statue the iron becomes mixed with clay and I always somehow picture picture like an iron pot that has been broken into pieces and somebody's put it back together by using clay as a, as a glue or as a joint filler. And so it's got fissures in it where there's weakness, but it's all back together. And uh, that's kind of the way this thing was. And it does mention um, in verses 42 and 43, talking about the fourth kingdom, it says, "As the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. Okay, so he says, you're the head of gold and another kingdom after you and then a third and then a fourth. So just historically, just historically, if we start with Babylon, what are the next three kingdoms?
1: Uh, the Medo-Persian would be the next kingdom that was inferior. Uh, mm-hmm. And then the next would be Alexander the Great's kingdom of Greece. Uh, mm-hmm. And then the fourth kingdom would be that of Rome.
0: Yeah. Um, and, and there is evidence in the book of Daniel Uh, We're not just guessing. I mean, that's history, but we don't just have to assume that that's what that means. As you get over in the book of Daniel, Daniel, the eighth chapter, he's going to talk by name about the Medes and the Persians and then the Greeks. And this in a book that's written, you know, over 500 years before Christ, before the Persian. Well, the Persian Empire comes to power about 539 B.C., but at the time that that Nebuchadnezzar is king, you know, we're 60 years before that. Um, and then
1: years before, uh, the Grecian Empire that's mentioned in Chapter eight. Yeah. Uh, the mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so th- this is very clearly prophecies taking place.
0: So then if you think about that fourth kingdom is Rome and you think about that idea of the legs of iron and then there's fissures of clay in it, Rome. Rome was a city ruling over a vast empire that was made up of many different nations, many different ethnicities, many different cultures. And to me, I always think in terms in modern history of the Soviet Union, which when you and I were kids, we didn't know the difference between Russia and the Soviet Union. That was, those were synonyms. And then lo and behold, we get to 1989, 1990, 1991. And, and, uh, And the wall comes down and and eventually Russia, uh, the Soviet Union falls apart. And and lo and behold, the Soviet Union was made up of a bunch of different nationalities that didn't all even like each other. Uh, Russia and Ukraine were all part of that. Uh, The Chechnyans and Georgia and Kazakhstan and they were all part of that, and and now they are not necessarily all on good terms with one another, as is obvious in Russia going into Ukraine in the war there. And so, what you had was an empire that was held together by the totalitarian power of its leaders of its system. And once, eventually, you saw the fissures um, open up there, and and that's that's kind of what you had with Rome. It was a powerful empire but there were weaknesses in that empire in as much as it was made up of all different groups of ethnicities that weren't necessarily always on the same page as each other.
1: Yeah, and and maybe just to add emphasis to to what you're saying, when we look at this fourth kingdom, beginning in verse 40, uh, and then that goes all the way through verse 43, those feet and toes are not... 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, ninth, 10th, and so on kingdoms. It no. is one kingdom that is being talked right. about all the way through that text. And it emphasizes right. that singular, that kingdom. Um, and so that helps to dispel some of the uh, false teaching or, or misinterpretations of this text. We're only talking about four kingdoms total. And yep. uh, we ought we'll to try to add more um, uh, as far as the, the man-made uh, kingdoms here.
0: And 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 so the reason that that's important, and what you're alluding to, of course, is, as we look at this dream, the stone that's cut out without hands, indicating it's of divine origin, is gonna that's gonna grow into the mountain that's the kingdom of God. It's gonna come in the days of the fourth kingdom. It's gonna hit the feet of the image, and so you have God's kingdom being established when God's Christ comes into the world and ascends to rule from the right hand of God and so his kingdom was established in the days of the Roman Empire, but there are people who believe that really what we should be looking for is a future establishment of God's kingdom. Well, if if Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome are all history, then how does this relate to a future? Well, the way people do it is they say, well, there's actually more kingdoms to come. It's not just four, it's five, or uh, there's a new Rome coming. That's not what you see in Daniel 2. You see a, a, in Daniel thirty nine, Daniel chapter 2, verse 39, another kingdom. That's the second, a third, and then in verse 40, a fourth. Well, I got I might do my fingers wrong, but <laughs> you got the second, the third, and the fourth. And, and that, that fourth is Rome. And it never mentions a fifth kingdom until you get to the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom of God that supplants all these. All right, so that's the point that that we want to stress today. The book of Daniel is talking about the fact that even though we've been reading through the Old Testament and dealing with the nation of Israel, God has in mind a kingdom that is going to supplant the greatest kingdoms of men on earth. Um, And you think of the Roman Empire. It would come to an end, and God's kingdom would grow to be a great mountain. And if you think about it, which kingdom exists today, Rome or the kingdom of God?
1: The kingdom of God continues.
0: And, and so and so Daniel, the book of Daniel is sending the message that God is overall, God's kingdom is greater than all the kingdoms of men, but also that God is is that all the kings of the earth are subject to God. And and so we get into the book of Daniel, chapter three. Uh, four and uh, Nebuchadnezzar, we won't spend time going through this chapter unless you just want to, but Nebuchadnezzar is really humbled until he acknowledges that there is a God who rules over all that, that Nebuchadnezzar is not in control.
1: Uh, Maybe just to to tie a couple things together really quickly here. Uh, You made the comment earlier that that first kingdom was Babylon not necessarily specifically Nebuchadnezzar. Mm -hmm. I don't think Nebuchadnezzar really got that at the beginning because chapter three, you have him build this grand statue in honor of himself. Um, uh, It was to to represent him um, uh, and uh, it was all gold, like the head was. And so you do see this pride entering into the story and so that really is a great segue to chapter four, where Nebuchadnezzar is humbled. Then,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Daniel chapter three is that story where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into the fiery furnace, and uh, Nebuchadnezzar thought he could compel them to bow down and honor his statue, and and uh, found out he couldn't. And so, all right. So uh, as we move on through the book of, of Daniel, we come to Daniel chapter seven. And in Daniel chapter seven, Daniel himself, whose name is given here as, no, it is given as Daniel. He has a dream. And uh, again, it's going to represent the same four kingdoms that Daniel chapter two are are about. Um, So I'm going to read a little bit if that's all right with you. Daniel chapter seven, I'm going to start in verse two. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea and four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. So in in chapter two, in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, there was a statue with four parts. Now we have four beasts and they're coming up from the sea. Verse four, the first was like a lion and it had the wings of an eagle and so on. I'm going to simplify this. The the main appearance of this first beast is a lion. It's not a lion like you or I would see in a zoo because it has wings and so on, but it's a lion. And then verse uh, five, uh, behold, another beast, a second one resembling a bear, and it was raised up on one side. Uh, And then I'll skip down to verse six. And the third one was like a leopard. Again, it has wings, but it's like a leopard. And then uh, then verse uh, seven says this. After this, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong. And it had large iron teeth It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. And um, verse eight, Daniel is contemplating the horns and another horn. A little one came up and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it, and behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. Now, before we get into the court scene when these beasts are judged, anything you want to talk about in terms of these three beasts that Daniel sees in his dream? Uh,
1: no, so I think, you know, you have the gates of Babylon uh, have depictions of lions on them. Um, mm-hmm. sort of just an interesting a uh, piece of uh, archaeological fact there, and then uh, won't spend much time with the the bear and medo Persia, but the the leopard, you know, a fast animal, and you think about Alexander the Great's conquering of uh, the the world in such rapid speed, and so the the, the imagery here matches uh, the kings and those those kingdoms as
0: well. Yeah, there's a, there's a subtle piece of image. So, we, so what we're saying is you've got four beasts. We had four parts of the statue in Daniel 2. That represented four kingdoms. We're saying these four beasts represent the same four kingdoms. And, and you're talking about some ways in which these the appearance of these beasts is appropriate to the kingdom. The second one, the bear, uh, there's a subtle hint here. It's raised up on one side. If we go back to Daniel chapter eight or or turn over to to Daniel chapter eight, you'll see a vision in which Medo-Persia is represented by a ram and um, Greece is represented by a, a goat. And it tells us that it tells us in chapter eight and verse 20 that the ram is with a ram that had two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. Well, in the description of that ram, it talked about those two horns and said that the longer one came up um, second, that it had two horns. One came up first and then the other one came up and grew longer. And historically, what you had was the older part of the Medo-Persian Empire was the Median Empire, the Medes. And they had actually allied together with the Babylonians to defeat Assyria way back in in 612 BC, um, and and yet when the Medes and the Persians allied together, the Persians ended up being the more dominant, and so that's their horn representing them is is longer and it says in Daniel 8 20 the ram which you saw with the two horns represent the kings of media and Persia it says those two horns media and Persia and the one that came up last ended up being the longer one that being Persia so then you think about the bear in Daniel 7 he's raised up on one side one side taking precedence over the other side Um, so it it fits that do you make it much out of the fact that in Daniel two, in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, the legs that represented Rome were of iron, and that there is iron mentioned in connection with the fourth beast in Daniel seven?
1: I had not noticed that one. That that's that is interesting. Um, yeah,
0: I, uh, think uh, I think that's a valid point.
1: Yeah, yeah, uh, great, great. I I I missed that uh, detail or had forgotten great. it.
0: Yeah. Um, and and so. So, all right, so we've got these four beasts that seem to represent these same four empires, these same world kingdoms that, that Daniel that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream back in Daniel 2. But we've not finished the vision that, that Daniel sees in Daniel 7. It's not just he sees four beasts, but there's a judgment scene. And Joe, why don't you take us through verses 9 through 12 of Daniel 7?
1: Uh, I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The courts were seated, the books were opened, and I watched then, because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking... And I watched till the beast was slain and its bodies destroyed, its body destroyed and given to the burning flames. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time.
0: All right. So um you have got obviously a court scene here. I thought it was interesting. Your translation in verse 10 says the court's plural sat. No, see, is that right? I, I mean, Okay. So the, one, the, one one court. Okay. The Ancient of Days in verse nine, it's easy to understand. We're talking about God here. And the court sits, the books are open. It's like there's a judgment scene. And as you read verses 11 and 12, it becomes clear that the ones who receive judgment, the ones who are condemned are the beasts, these these four world empires. And then verse 13, I kept looking in the night vision and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. Let's pause there. So in Daniel 2, you had this statue representing these four beasts and a stone cut out without hands strikes it on the feet. And the whole thing crumbles and that stone is the kingdom of God and it grows to become a great mountain. Here you have these four beasts And there's a court that sits for judgment and rules against them. And the kingdom is given to one like the son of man. And he has dominion. And so in both of these, you see God's kingdom supplanting and outshining the kingdoms of the world. These great, powerful kingdoms, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Uh, Anything you want to point out there before I jump back to something else here?
1: No, you you have the, the, the very same uh conclusion that is given that uh for example in Daniel 2:44 uh it consumed all of these kingdoms and it shall stand forever and then that same idea uh in Daniel 7:14 the end of it his dominion is an everlasting kingdom its kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed so both of these are an eternal kingdom or uh, they 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 are permanent kingdoms
0: there's a there's an interesting little phrase here in verse 12, as for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. Um, When we think back to the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had in chapter two and the fact that the stone strikes the feet and the whole image crumbles, well, the image represents Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. But when in the first century, when the Christ comes into the world (coughs) and when he ascends to the father and sits and rules over his kingdom. When that happens, Rome is the only empire in existence. Babylon, Medo-Persia and Greece were all history, at least politically. They were all history by then. So how do you have the whole image crumbling by this stone that represents God's kingdom? If in fact, the Babylonian empire were represented by the head of gold and the medo-persian Empire represented by the bronze uh, the silver breast and so on were already history. how is it that the whole statue crumbles at once?
1: I, I think that's really so so Daniel 7:12 I think really helps us to to uh, understand that uh, what seems like a, a dilemma there um, so their dominion was taken away but their lives the lives of those kingdoms continued i'm thinking in terms of language and culture um uh, even even land uh, and so forth um uh, you know those those places didn't cease to exist but like you said they were not the power any longer their dominion yeah. taken away but, but the 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 cultures uh would would continue especially think about the how much rome was affected by uh, the Grecian language and, and, so forth. And, you know, uh, even the customs and laws of e- each of those empires or each of those kingdoms uh, were built somewhat based upon the laws of previous kingdoms.
0: Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Each empire was assimilated into the next one. Um, you mentioned language uh, when Rome was the Roman empire in the first century, the language of the world was Greek. Uh, so yes, they had conquered Greece, but Greek language had had t- had persisted. Uh, Will Durant is a was a historian who, in one of his volumes, makes the point that even though Rome conquered Greece, it was Greek architecture and Greek art and Greek language uh, that that pervaded the Roman Empire. And so, in a sense, Greece conquered Rome. Um, obviously, not militarily, but each empire, Babylon was a, subsumed into the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire was inherited by, subsumed into the Greek Empire, and and that, that then in turn in Rome. So we, by the time you get to Rome, Rome is a roll-up of everything that's come before it. <laughs> and Joe, that's interesting, because when we get to the New Testament and we get to the book of Revelation, there's a context where we're talking about a beast that represents the Roman empire. And what does that beast look like?
1: So it really, it, I think that's just fascinating to, to look at in, in Revelation 13 and Revelation 17. It, it is the description of this horrible, terrible beast of Daniel 7:7. very similar language. But it says that it looks like a leopard, a bear and a lion. Yeah. Um, and it is given in the exact opposite order as Daniel seven and, yeah. and somebody pointed out a long time ago that Daniel is seeing these kingdoms off into the future. So they're in sequence while John is receiving this vision and looking in the past. And so they're going in the opposite direction, but yeah. the same imagery is leopard, bear and lion.
0: But by the time we get to revelation in the days of the Roman empire, they are it's all rolled up into one beast. That that beast comes up out of the sea. Uh, the four beasts in Daniel seven come up out of the sea. There are various other parallels we may or may not talk about today, but uh, but that you know if you're if people always get fascinated with the Book of Revelation. Sometimes they need to start back in the Old Testament, learn the Old Testament first, and then when you come to the Book of Revelation you're going to see what all this imagery is about because it's rooted in the old Testament. If you just start reading revelation 13 and there's this weird beast description, you can go off in any direction you want with your imagination. But if you come to it with this Daniel seven in your back pocket, you, you understand this imagery. Then you realize revelation 13 is talking about the roll up of all these beasts of all these kingdoms into one, the Roman empire. Um, All right. But, In Daniel 7, what we're seeing again, if you've got a God who is thought of as, well, he's the God of Israel, and yet he's telling telling you over here in Babylon what's going to happen, not only to Babylon, but what's going to happen to the kingdom that replaces Babylon. And what's going to happen to the kingdom that replaces the kingdom that replaces Babylon? And what's going to happen to the kingdom that replaces the kingdom that replaces the kingdom that replaces Babylon? And then about his kingdom and how it's going to be an eternal kingdom. And you start to get the picture. There is a God who is over everything. He is truly the judge, not just of Daniel personally, and not just of the nation of Israel, but of the world.
1: And, and, and so fascinating that as we look at these chapters, as as we just kind of just quickly recap 2 through 7, uh, that this section of Daniel is actually in a different language. Uh, it's in the Aramaic yeah. language from Daniel 2, 4 through the end of chapter 7. So as we are focusing on world events, there is not the Hebrew language that's describing them, but the Aramaic language. And so Daniel 1 through 2, 3 and then Daniel 8 and following are going to be in Hebrew um, because they are dealing primarily with how things will affect the Jews themselves and the, the, the land, the, the, the promised land. So re- really that that is even shown by the way that it is written.
0: A couple of things I want to point out in Daniel 7 uh, in verse 13, when after the court has sat and the these beasts, these kingdoms are condemned and then one like a son of man comes before the ancient of days, and and the kingdom is given to him. I'm convinced, Joe, that this is the origin of the phrase son of man that Jesus uses so often for himself in context where it's clear he's not just saying I'm a human. He is Uh, He is connecting himself with this one like a son of man in Daniel 7 who receives the kingdom. And so that expression son of man comes to be (coughs) a kind of shorthand for (coughs) or maybe longhand for the Christ, the Messiah, because the one who receives the kingdom is the king.
1: In fact, uh, thinking about Matthew 6, 13, um, uh, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? And as they go through the guesses and as, uh, as Peter gives a, a great answer uh, regarding that, one of the things that um, uh, Jesus responds with in verse 19 is, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And right. So the son of man and the kingdom are tied together. Uh, exactly. In that rather uh, famous passage.
0: Good, 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 good. All right. Okay. Uh, another thing in Daniel 7, um, after, we've kind of jumped ahead a little bit, but after after the vision, Daniel wants to know what does this mean? Um, verse 16, I approached one of those who were standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. Um, <coughs> so there's a general response. But then in verse 19, Daniel says, well, I desire to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others. And so there's quite a description here of the conflict between the fourth beast and the saints of God. And there's some phrases here in this description that, again, as we were talking about a moment ago, come back to us in the book of Revelation, in in Revelation, the 13th chapter. Uh, I'll just note here um, verse 21. Uh, it talks about this fourth beast and it talks about the horns on its head and it talks about the mouth uttering great boast in verse 20. And then it says in verse 21, I kept looking and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them. And that's an expression that we see in, in revelation 13, when we see that, that beast that is a composite of all four of these beasts and we see waging war with the saints. Um, what verse is that? It's revelation 13 verse. What do you happen to remember off the top of your head?
1: Uh, waging war with them.
0: Uh, revelation seven, maybe or 11. Y- yeah. Verse seven, revelation 13, seven, it was given him to make war with the saints and overcome them. Um, that's it. In verse five, it talks about speaking great things and blasphemies, which sounds like this, this fourth beast here in Daniel chapter seven. Um, then we come down in 11,
1: you also have in chapter 11 and in verse 7 that they'll make war against them and overcome them and kill them uh Good. as well and, and that's tied together with this uh, language and maybe i'm getting ahead of you a little bit but the time times and the half a time in uh, daniel 7 25 it begins there in chapter 11 it's uh, talked about again in uh, in chapter 12 and in chapter 13 that, that that same time frame is given
0: yeah i'm glad you mentioned that it's in in daniel 7 it's in verse 25 and it, it the phrase time times and half a time is used to to describe the period of time that god's people are afflicted by this fourth beast and so you come to the book of revelation and you see different forms different formats different forms of that same expression but it it, it if you have Daniel in your back pocket, you realize there was a precedent set that that's a time period of God's people suffering, God's people being persecuted. What are the other forms under which that 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 time frame is described in Revelation? Not just time times and half a time, but also what?
1: Yeah. So so think about time singular times, then two more, and then half time, so three and a half. And Daniel or Revelation mentions forty two months. And it also mentions 1,260 days, which is 42 months, which is three and a half years.
0: Yeah. Okay. So you have those three different ways of referring to a time of persecution, all boiling down to three and a half, three and a half years. Time, times, and half time, 42 months, 1,260 days. Um, okay. Um, the, the I guess we're going to get out of time here. The last thing that I want to just make note of is this statement in verse 25. Um, this, this, one of these horns of this fourth beast will speak out against the most high and wear down the saints of the highest one. He will intend to make alterations in times and in law. I think back to earlier in Daniel chapter two, where we noted Daniel saying God is the one who, um, that God is the one who changes the times and the epics. Man's not in control of history, but this, this one thinks he is verse 26 The court sits for judgment. So Daniel is being given the interpretation of the vision we described earlier. And his dominion, this dominion of this fourth beast, will be taken away, annihilated, destroyed forever. And the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole of heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. And so that's kind of the, the point. God is in control over everything, and he has a kingdom that is going to prevail eternally. And these other kingdoms, starting with Nebuchadnezzar's and the ones that come after him, would not. So think we're out of time, Joe. Thank you. Uh, Lord willing, we'll be back with you next week. And we hope you'll tune in.